0: You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Jack Lewin, Chief Executive Officer of the American College of Cardiology.
1: The FDA's pre-market approval process was first established over 30 years ago, but since then, The development of devices has dramatically changed thanks to new technology. How should the FDA modernize its pre-market approval process to ensure medical device safety? Our guests today are Dr. Rita Redberg, Professor of Clinical Medicine at the University of California San Francisco School of Medicine and Director of Women's Cardiovascular Services at the UCSF National Center for Excellence in Women's Health, and Dr. Bram Zuckerman, Director of the Division of Cardiovascular Devices at the FDA. Welcome, doctors Redberg and Zuckerman. Good to be here. Thank you. Let's start by talking about the uh, current cardiovascular device pre-market approval process at the FDA, the PMA process. You know, How does the current process work from your point of view, Bram?
2: I think in looking at the situation, it's important to recognize that both the Center for Drugs and Center for Devices have three common missions. One is to get safe and effective medical products to the market in a timely fashion. The second is to ensure that post-market surveillance is appropriate. And three, to ensure that the public gets accurate information about medical products. At this point, the two systems, the one for drug approval and device approval, diverge significantly. For safe and effective drugs to go to market and to be approved, there's a uniform standard where we usually require two adequate and well-controlled trials. For device regulation, there's a very different program in place, and it's important to understand that. We have a risk-based system where we have device classes, class one through three, Class 1 devices are the lowest-risk devices, class 2 devices are moderate-risk, and class 3 devices are the highest-risk, or so-called PMA devices, where we might expect uh, bench, animal, and human clinical data. As a result of this risk-based system, there's quite a bit of flexibility in our regulations regarding what is valid scientific evidence for PMA approval? This flexibility is important because Congress has recognized that the device development paradigm is very different from the drug approval pathway. Device development is an iterative process and consequently at different stages in the product life cycle of a device different clinical trial requirements might be appropriate. For example, if we're talking about a first-generation drug-looting stent with a new chemical moiety, the FDA would require a randomized trial. But if we're talking about a third-generation version of this device where the sponsor might be tinkering on the terminal strut thickness, a different type of clinical trial design might be requested by the FDA for marketing approval. So consequently, the whole system is complex, and the context of where we are in the device approval process is important for figuring out how we determine safety and effectiveness.
1: Gotcha. Well, you know, because we're approaching these things differently, pharma from devices right now. We might comment on the basis that you're both authors of separately commissioned studies regarding the quality of the FDA cardiovascular PMA process. Dr. Redberg, let's start with your study published in JAMA in December 2009, which caused a, a bit of a stir in the medical community. Can you tell us a bit about the studies you reviewed that were included in pre-market approval of Class three cardiovascular devices?
0: So this was a study that I did with Funkett Drewer and Lisa Barrow, two colleagues at UCSF, and we looked only at pre-market approvals from 2000 to 2007 just for cardiovascular devices, which, as Fran said, are the highest risk. We found a total of 78 pre-market approvals for high-risk devices. Then we looked particularly at the kind of data that was in the summary of safety and effectiveness, which is, as you know, what's published on the FDA site and is the reason, objective, and balanced critique of the scientific evidence, which serves as the basis of the decision to approve or deny the PMA. And so in looking at the quality of the studies, we looked in particular, were they randomized? Were they blinded? How long was the follow-up? And we looked at the endpoints in the studies, as well as a number of other questions. And what we found was that 33 of the 123 studies, or 27%, were randomized. So the majority were not randomized. Um, Only 17 of 123 or 14% were blinded studies. And most of those actually were the stent studies.
1: And probably not enough sex-specific data in there as well. It was very little. Yeah.
0: So were you surprised, Rita, by the findings? We were surprised by the findings, although we certainly recognize that devices and drugs are different. We also purposely chose cardiovascular devices as they are high-risk and we would expect Mm -hmm. high-quality data, which in general wouldn't always be randomized trials, but we expected the majority to be randomized and a lot more blinded. We were surprised at the lack of controls in a lot of studies and the use of historical controls.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Lewin. Our guests today are Dr. Rita Redberg, professor of clinical medicine at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine and Director of Women's Cardiovascular Services at UCSF National Center for Excellence in Women's Health, and Dr. Bram Zuckerman, Director of the Division of Cardiovascular Services Devices at FDA. And we're discussing modernizing the FDA pre-market approval process for medical devices. Bram, can you tell us about the study you co-authored on this same subject in the American Journal of Therapeutics in 2010?
2: Yes. The study that was co-authored by FDA is the study that you are representing, we obtained the help of two Harvard researchers, doctors William Mazel and Dr. Dan Kramer, and we trained them initially in our PMA review process and then let them independently look at the PMAs from 2000 to 2007. Interestingly, the conclusions that they reached were somewhat different from the JAMA authors. And for a variety of reasons, we think that they're more relevant for helping us redefine and move our program forward.
1: And you want the IOM to kind of take you through a thorough study of this. I mean, what do you hope additional studies will provide in terms of uh, new results and recommendations that will come out of that?
2: Well, let's backtrack a moment. The IOM report is specifically looking at our Class 2 or 510K program. The FDA internally has been looking at its PMA or Class 3 program over the last few years, and this year will be coming out with some very important developments, and let me take you through them. Number one, there will be a draft guidance being published by the end of the year on device clinical trial design. It's obvious that the device paradigm is not similar to the drug paradigm, and our goal is to make clear what best practices are for device trial designs. For example, we don't believe that a randomized controlled trial is always necessary depending on where we are in the total product life cycle of a device. On the other hand, if we do utilize a design that's different from a randomized controlled trial, we want to make sure that bias and confounding are minimized to the extent possible and that we utilize all other best clinical trial practices. Number two, there will be a draft guidance published by the end of the year on gender-related trial design issues. A significant focus of the FDA over the last few years has been to increase women's participation in clinical trials, and this draft guidance will be an important stepping stone in this regard.
1: I can see what you're doing here. I mean, you're really looking at trying to balance, on one hand, encouraging innovation with the need for stronger evidence and a more balanced group of actual patients involved. Is this part of what the the town hall hearings and meetings are, are doing? Are you getting this evidence from all those places, or how are you going with all of this? Is this both coming from the patient community, the town hall meetings? How do you balance innovation as you proceed with these new
2: proposed improvements? Well, that's a great question, Jack, and a very complicated one. And we certainly appreciate the viewpoint of all stakeholders. And as you just mentioned, the viewpoint being offered by the medical device industry in a series of town halls that our center director, Dr. Jeffrey Shuren, is presently doing is an important avenue for realistic expectations as to how to balance innovation versus safety and effectiveness. But I do want to note that a large number of the changes that will be made in the device program have now been really discussed internally over the last few years. It's been obvious that in certain areas we need improved methodology, and I would really recommend that uh, anyone who's interested look at Dr. Shuren's strategic report on our website it's a very detailed assessment of where we are and what changes can be expected in the PMA program but in general i think that there are several things that should stand out to the clinical investigator community and the medical device industry Number one, the type of improvements that are in the strategic plan are not that difficult to implement and really should result in increased efficiency and innovation. Why do I say that? Well, if we can develop better science, then I think there are less questions during the PMA review cycle and we can get appropriate products out to patients and practitioners in less time. Number two, though, I do think it's important to emphasize that device development is a very complex and challenging process. And I think that the medical device industry certainly needs to make better use of pre-IDE and pre-PMA meetings to really get a sense of what the FDA is looking for in its device applications, and then really just needs to do it. Certainly, the idea of improving innovation in this country and improving translational research isn't a new one for this year's strategic plan. Beginning in 2005, the FDA developed a critical path program specifically designed to improve translational research in this country and innovation. There are currently critical path programs in biomarkers, computer modeling, clinical trial design, and pediatric device development, to name a few.
1: Rita, let's get back to you. What changes would you recommend to the FDA in terms of the PMA process from your perspective on the outside?
0: Well, obviously, we think you know it's important to have high-quality evidence. We appreciate the need for innovation, but we also think that we want to be sure of safety and effectiveness. And so I think that we saw, for example, 88% of the studies use surrogate endpoints. Sometimes, certainly, a surrogate endpoint is appropriate, but for a lot of devices, and particularly as most of these devices are permanently implanted and cannot be removed or certainly not without great risk to the patient, We want to be sure that there are clinical endpoints that are assuring that they are both safe and effective. And so I think more use of clinical endpoints, more use of randomized studies, and more blinding in studies that are used for FDA device approval. Because I think FDA device approval is often considered to be the last step before widespread usage of new devices. And so it really carries a lot of weight when an FDA device
1: gets approved. Right. We've been discussing modernizing the FDA pre-market approval process for medical devices with Dr. Rita Redberg and Dr. Bram Zuckerman. Uh, Rita and Bram, thank you for today's conversation. It's been fascinating.
0: Thank you so much, Jeff. It was my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.